Hello, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Eglash. This podcast is co-sponsored by the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, as well as the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. The Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine is an international organization of physicians dedicated to the promotion, protection, and support of breastfeeding and human lactation through education and research. Our goal for this podcast series is to help you manage clinical aspects of breastfeeding medicine. We also hope to keep you updated with current research that may impact practice management. Any advice or recommendations in this podcast do not reflect official policies or views of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. This is part one of a two-part series regarding neonatal jaundice. In the first podcast, we'll talk about the definition, epidemiology, and screening infants for newborn jaundice. In the second part of this podcast series, we'll talk about prevention of neonatal jaundice and and the follow-up of these infants after leaving the hospital. We'll then talk about breast milk jaundice. I have with me today Dr. Larry Gartner. Dr. Gartner is a professor emeritus in pediatrics and and OBGYN with the University of Chicago. He's done a great deal of research in hyperbilirubinemia since 1959. He currently lives in Valley Center, California. Well, hi, Larry. Thanks for joining today on this podcast. Hello, Anne. Glad to be here with you. Yeah, I bet the weather is better there than it is here out there in sunny California. (laughs) Well, I'm sure it is. It's certainly not snowing here, but it's a little bit cloudy. Yeah, well, gosh, I feel sorry for you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we're talking about jaundice today. And I guess my first question to you is, why do we care about jaundice? What, what is the issue with jaundice for breastfeeding babies versus jaundice for formula-fed babies? Well, to answer the first part of the question, uh, we're interested and concerned about jaundice in newborns, uh, because we don't like babies to be yellow. It isn't the color that bothers us, uh, but it's the fact that excessively high levels of uh, bilirubin, which of course is the material that causes jaundice, uh, in the circulation, in the blood, will have the potential for causing a form of brain damage, which can, in rare circumstances, be very severe. So we are concerned about the jaundice really for the prevention of brain damage. And is there a higher rate of jaundice among babies who are breastfed versus uh, babies who are, are formula fed? Well, there is uh, after the first five days of life, uh, the normal physiologic jaundice, which all babies have, uh, tends to be higher and be more prolonged in the breastfed baby after five days, and of course it can last uh, up to as long as two or three months uh, with some elevation of the bilirubin level. Uh, Under ideal feeding circumstances, the breastfed baby and the formula-fed baby will have the same levels of bilirubin during the first five days. So the real difference occurs after five days. Okay. So um, you were partially referring to breast milk jaundice, which we'll talk about in our second uh, part of this podcast series. Um, So are there certain groups of babies that are at higher risk for jaundice? 
yes. Uh, there are uh, higher levels of bilirubin and greater risk of chronicterus, the kind of brain damage we're talking about, uh, that occur in premature infants. So the less mature baby, even the borderline preemie, the baby who is um, 37 weeks but not into the 38th week, uh, those babies, and certainly the less mature prematures, have much greater risk of developing more severe hyperbilirubinemia and a greater risk of developing chronicterus. Are there a few other risk factors, such as race or um, uh, age of um, parent, etc.? Well, there are many other uh, risk factors that have been identified. Uh, race is one. Uh, the Asian populations, in general, have a greater risk of higher bilirubin levels. Uh, the reason for that is not understood, but is obviously a a genetic uh, factor. Uh, there also are pathologic circumstances, infants obviously, with uh, hemolytic diseases such as RH and ABO uh, are at much greater risk of developing excessive levels of uh, bilirubin in their blood because they're hemolyzing. Uh, and uh, there are other uh, historical circumstances that indicate a greater risk for hyperbilirubinemia or excessive bilirubin levels, uh, such as a previous sibling who has had uh, either excessive bilirubin or required phototherapy or even exchange transfusion. So uh, there may be a familial uh, tendency in all populations uh, for there to be uh, excessive hyperbilirubinemia. So it sounds like a good question to ask a family after the baby's born is if any siblings have had hyperbilirubinemia. Yes, in fact it's an essential question uh, and particularly to identify the ones who needed treatment for the hyperbilirubinemia. So if they had phototherapy uh, or readmission to the hospital or exchange transfusion, that needs to be uh, known to the caregivers uh, so they can uh, watch the babies much more closely. Mm -hmm. And let's talk a little bit about chronicterus since I think most primary care providers rarely really see chronicterus. Um, can you describe what it looks like and what groups are at highest risk? Uh, well, what chronicterus, let me just define it first. Chronicterus is a a form of brain damage uh, which occurs during the time of the very high bilirubin level. When bilirubin gets into the brain and actually uh, damages or kills uh, the brain cells in certain areas of the brain, particularly in the basal ganglia and cerebellum. Uh, and the babies who have this when in the newborn period, they manifest certain characteristic uh, physical signs. Uh, they have a uh, high-pitched cry. Uh, they often uh, have very poor feeding. And in fact, one of the precursors or the, what's often called a pre-kernicteric phase is a change in their feeding 
so that they become lethargic and feed more poorly. And later on, we'll get into why that's also a cause of jaundice. But uh, one of the manifestations early on is this poor feeding and lethargy and often a high-pitched cry. Uh, as the uh, damage of the brain progresses in this newborn period, uh, which often is in the first week of life, uh, the babies will develop an epistotonic posture, which is an arching of the back and the neck with the head pushed backward, often quite forcibly, uh, so that they take on a very peculiar posture. They also may have uh, spasticity of their arms and legs with arms extended and legs extended and often with scissoring, that is, they have crossing over of their legs and will stay in this position, which is a very abnormal position for a newborn. And sometimes they have movements which are interpreted as being seizures, and they look like seizures, but in fact, if you do an EEG on the babies, they are not having seizures. What they're having is uh, some sort of active muscular activity uh, but it is not driven by cortical stimulation because babies with chronicterus generally have no damage to their cerebral cortex. The damage is in the more uh, primitive or uh, basic areas of the brain, uh, the brain stem and the cerebellum. Uh, and so the other thing shows up on EEG, which is mainly measuring cortical activity. Now, the babies who survive this period, and these days, most of the babies with chronicterus do survive, although once in a while a baby may die during that early period. But the ones who survive usually go through a period in which they look normal. In other words, all this abnormal posturing and uh, muscle activity disappears. And for a while, sometimes for several months, they will look to be entirely normal. And then as they get into the second half of the first year of life and into the beginning of the second year, they will begin to have manifestations of uh, what's called chorioathetoid cerebral palsy, uh, as well as some other neurologic signs. Uh, but it is a form of cerebral palsy in that it's a fixed lesion in the brain <clears throat> but as the brain and the nervous system in general and the spinal cord are uh, myelinating and becoming much more mature, the damage that had occurred in the newborn period becomes manifest. And so you begin to see evidence of what has happened uh, to the brain. And the major findings are this chorioathetoid cerebral palsy, which is a kind of writhing movements of the arms, legs, mouth, uh, in attempt to make movements, but they are discoordinated movements. And so they have very ineffective muscle activity, uh, which makes it often impossible or very difficult for them to sit, to stand, to walk, to use their hands, and even to speak, and sometimes even to swallow so that some of these infants cannot, or children as they get older, 
cannot feed uh, and have to be gastric fed by tube uh, because they can't swallow safely. They would aspirate or they simply couldn't handle the food in their mouth. They also may have deafness because the uh, bilirubin can damage the uh, auditory nervous system uh, and they have loss of transmission of sound uh, through the brain. Uh, so deafness is often uh, manifest and that sometimes will be picked up in the newborn screen after they have developed the cornicterus. Uh, and that may often be the only thing that's evident early on uh, and then later the motor activity abnormalities occur. And there's one other important sign and that is these infants with cornicterus often, although not always, lose the ability to look upward with their eyes. In other words, they can get their eyes at the uh, equator, if you will, but they can't look upward beyond the straight ahead look. Uh, so it's called paralysis of upward gaze is often a very characteristic finding. I had one patient years ago uh, who had this as the only manifestation of cornicterus. This was a very lucky child in that that was the only thing wrong. Uh, but it is very characteristic of uh, this type of brain damage. Interesting. And so do you think the epidemiology has changed over the last 50 years? Uh, it, it's hard to know because there's no uh, registration or register of these in a uh, national or standardized way. There is a registry of these patients in Philadelphia, but it depends on individual doctors uh, reporting to this registry, and it's certainly not complete. Uh, the incidence of cornicterus uh, is really unknown, although it's been estimated very roughly that there may be 40 cases of cornicterus every year in the United States. Uh, somewhat higher numbers have uh, been reported from uh, Norway and some other countries in Europe uh, where they have much more detailed reporting of, on a national basis. Uh, so it, uh, they may be correct that there are higher incidences than we realize, uh, but we really don't know for sure. Whether there's an increase, I don't know. A lot of the incidence of cornicterus depends on the medical management. Good management should prevent all or virtually all cornicterus. Uh, so we shouldn't be seeing any, or at least it ought to be a very rare event. Um, and most cases of cornicterus that have been reported, uh, if you look back at the medical record, you could see uh, periods of time when had uh, treatment been instituted either sooner or more effectively, cornicterus probably would have been prevented. Uh, so the incidence really depends both on the causation or the cause of the jaundice uh, and the medical management of it.
This is the end of part one interview with Dr. Gartner. During part two, which is our next podcast, we'll talk about screening and prevention of jaundice, managing the breastfed jaundice baby as well as breast milk jaundice. We'll see you later. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med dot o-r-g. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.